Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host. Welcome to episode 94 of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and today we're excited to have Glenn Powell back with us. Glenn is from the Institute for Bible Reading and the author of Saving the Bible from Ourselves. Today, we're going to be exploring seven big ideas about Scripture as we look at practical ways to better understand the Bible as the gift that God intended it to be in the life of the church. I know you'll enjoy today's conversation. Thank you for joining us. Glenn, it's so good to have you back in the studio. You're recently with us with one of your colleagues from the Institute for Bible Reading, Paul Caminiti. And and today I just want to jump right in because you have a tremendous amount of experience in the world of publishing and distributing the Bible. But you came to a place in your personal journey where you began to really wrestle with how we approach the Word of God and its place in the church and in our lives as followers of Jesus. Share with us how you came to that place. Um, I came from the Bible Society Movement, which is the nonprofit Bible ministry uh, movement that was focused historically on distribution and on translation work. And when I came into the organization, it was International Bible Society at the time, now Biblica, I bought into the narrative that what people need is to have the Bible, they need access to it, and they need it in a good translation. And kind of the implication was if, if you can get a Bible into people's hands, the magic happens. But then I started to realize when I was looking at the data that the magic was not happening, that just getting a Bible to someone was not the end game. That, that's not the result. That's an important, in fact, crucial step on the way to the result we want. They have to have access to well-translated Bibles, but that engagement leading to life transformation, that the Bible fulfilling the purpose for which God gave it into the world, that's what we want. And if that's not happening, even if I can make a career out of publishing, writing, editing notes, production, I mean, I knew that whole process. That's what I was in day by day was producing, in, in my case, in the nonprofit world, low-cost Bibles for prison ministry, crisis pregnancy ministry, sports ministry. We were working with all these different organizations to get Bibles into people's hands. But I realized that it wasn't working, that something different and better had to happen. Because really, for me, what it comes down to is the idea that God gave us the Scriptures for a reason. He seemed to think that the Scriptures are supposed to be a part of his mission to the world. And if we're not fully receiving, accepting, benefiting from the gift of the scriptures, then God's mission is not all that he wants it to be. That the scriptures are meant to play a vital role. And if we don't receive those scriptures and know them so that their work can be done in our lives, then we're living subpar Christian lives, not fully flourishing Christian lives. The scriptures are meant to play a crucial role. Some people are starting to doubt that. I see people expressly doubting that the Bible is supposed to be a big deal in the Christian life. They, I hear people talking about, you know, I just need Jesus. I just need a relationship I'm empowered by the Spirit with God the Father, and I don't really need the Scriptures. And I think that's wrong. I think God gave it to us for a reason. And so I, I, I started changing the way I was working in publishing in order to help the Bible become the gift that God intended it for it to be in the life of the church. So, Glenn, these experiences and sort of stepping back and reassessing the role of Scripture not only led to the deeper, more focused work you're doing as director of the Institute of Bible Reading, 
but as I understand it, it really gave rise to the book you've written, recently published by InterVarsity Press, entitled Saving the Bible from Ourselves. Now, your book seems to to encourage us to look at God's Word with fresh eyes, and you help us do this by exploring these seven big ideas about the Bible, where you contrast what we've sort of made the Bible to be against your understanding of the Bible as the gift that God intended it to be in the life of the church. So, Glenn, let's walk through these seven big ideas to give us a better understanding of why, although the Bible is the number one best-selling book in the world and millions of people are downloading the Bible, the Bible's more available and more accessible than ever in the history of humankind. It's being distributed in record numbers all around the world. Glenn, why do we have this disconnect with the Bible? Right. And just one piece of background information I think it's important to know is that all seven of these really grew out of uh, two fundamental questions that I think are, are behind all of this. And that is, we have to ask, what is the Bible? And then what are we supposed to do with it? And my feeling overall is is that the modern era has given us particular answers to those questions. It's designed and delivered the Bible to us as a certain kind of thing. And then based on that, we're told these are the kinds of things that you normally do with the Bible. And my contention is that's what's failed us. So what I wrote is seven new ideas for a, a new paradigm, really, for thinking about the Bible. And when you say the modern era, you're not talking about the last couple of decades, right? right? You're talking about literally the modern era, the last 500 years or so? 500 years or so. There's a lot of things that changed in the Bible 500 years ago, and um, we've been trying to get meaning from the Bible based on this paradigm that was really introduced 500 years ago. I think it's now showing that it's not delivering us the Bible in all its fullness and power and glory, and it's time to go back to an earlier form of the Bible and new practices, which are really ancient practices, communal practices, for instance, things that we need to recover in what we think the Bible is and what we think we're supposed to do with it. So I'm really trying to undo, if you will, completely audaciously, perhaps ridiculously, 500 years worth of Bible tradition and paradigm, which we need to distinguish that from the Bible itself. The Bible is not this thing that's been delivered to us in the modern era, the Bible lies underneath and behind that. And the part that's inspired, the place where God's Spirit worked, that's what we want to get to, not necessarily all the stuff we've added in the modern time. So here are the seven big ideas. One is we've created a complicated Bible. And when I mean complicated, I mean visually complicated. When people open a full Bible, two-column text with all the loaded additives, it's a very complicated thing, and, I, and we know that people are immediately intimidated by such a book. It looks hard. It looks complicated. And so what I recommend is we get back to having elegant Bibles. It means good design. Design matters in God's world. I think it's part of the way God's world is meant to work is that form and function, form and content work together. And how we deliver something, even in its visual form, and I'm including electronic editions here. I think what we see when we look on the screen of our phone, of our tablet, or whether it's a print Bible, we should see something that is elegant and simple and delivers the content in a way that's meaningful for people. So that's the first big idea, an elegant Bible. Okay, and, and those Bibles are being published now? 
They are. Um, I'm very happy to report that publishers are starting to embrace this idea of a new category of Bibles. So we have reference Bibles, which is the Bible most of us know. Anybody who has a Bible has a reference Bible. What if everybody had a reading Bible? And so publishers are now across the board beginning to come out with reader's editions, single column, beautiful design, plenty of letting, um, everything that shows the books in their natural form. So poetry as poetry, letters as letters, proverbs, prophecies, stories. You think about all the different kinds of writing in the Bible. You should see that when you open the page instead of two columns of complicated dictionary-like text. So that's a big step forward. I think it's the basis for the other recoveries that we want to make. That's so true. So what about this next idea, our snacking Bible versus the feasting Bible? Right, directly related to the first idea. Because when we complicated the form of the Bible, which was a fragmentation of the text of the Bible into these little bite-sized chunks, naturally what people started to do with such a Bible, rather than read it, at length and in depth, taking in the whole letter, we started snacking on the Bible because the form told us to snack. That's what we did. It's directly related to the modern form of the Bible. What we're advocating is we got to get back to reading, to feasting on the Bible. So we want to eat whole meals. C.S. Lewis said, when I sit down to read a book, he says, I like a good hearty meal. What he means is he wants to take it all in. He wants to lose himself in that story. He wants to be swallowed up by something big, not just taking a little piece of something and trying to fit it into my life. I want my life to be taken up into this bigger thing, this story that I'm reading. So that's a great vision, I think, for the scriptures. And I think it's the first step to recovering a full Bible for us is feasting on a now elegant Bible. Another thing that that happens, really, I'll just give one example. Um, When you take out the chapter and verse markers, which have been the structure for our Bibles, you discover there's a whole new Bible to to be found there. Um, Matthew, for instance, doesn't have 28 natural chapters. It has five books. Five times Jesus repeats this phrase. And it's very fascinating because he's writing to a Jewish audience. And so he's presenting, in essence, a new Torah, a new Pentateuch. He's There's the five books of Jesus who's fulfilling the role of a new Moses, bringing the new Exodus. And so it was an intentional structure in Matthew to have five big sections, and that's lost in our 28 chapters. And so in book after book, when you take out the artificial placement of the chapter numbers, you find that there's a natural structure there, which is actually part of the message of the book. And this happens all over the place in the Bible, and we've never seen it because we've had an artificial structure over the book. So there's a whole Bible waiting to be rediscovered. That's fascinating and encouraging and exciting. So this next big idea is our The Gods Must Be Crazy Bible versus the Historical Bible. Unpack that for us. Yes. I don't know if you know the movie. It came out of South Africa. It's hilarious. If you've never seen it, go check it out. The Gods Must Be Crazy. It's uh, this tribe in the Kalahari Desert in Botswana, and uh, somebody flying over in an airplane throws a Coke bottle out the window, and it falls into where this tribe lives. They've never seen anything related to modern culture in the modern world. So they, they have this hilarious story about, you know, what are they going to do with this Coke bottle? And they start fighting over it and all these things. And they finally throw it over the cliff at the end of the movie with lots of humor along the way. But it's a metaphor for me of people have this idea that the Bible fell intact from heaven as a complete book, unrelated to the specific history of his people and embedded in the culture and times in which they live. 
And I, I think the next step, and, and it actually it happens naturally if you start feasting on the Bible, you will start to realize, look, I can't just cherry pick my favorite verses because now I'm reading instead of just I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I'm reading the entire letter to the Philippians. I'm understanding that Paul was in prison when he wrote that. And what he's talking about is he can live a certain kind of life in spite of what's happening to him through the power of Christ, not that he can do anything imaginable in the creation. So reading those verses in their full context, we start to understand that the Bible is also a very human book. We're always talking about the Bible as as the Word of God, but I think it's just as in our doctrine of Christ, it's just as important to have a human Christ as a divine Christ, that he was fully one of us, he came and lived in our world. The Bible is fully human, and so there's this cultural historical element And the thing to do with the Bible is to read every part of the Bible in light of the time in which it was written as a fully human book that God also infused with his spirit to do its work. But we have to read the Bible in its own setting first and then talk about how does that story have meaning for us today. It's a two-step process. Yeah, no, no, that makes perfect sense. And uh, we can see how in the modern era how pulling out these little nuggets— how you know that removes itself, like you say, from that context, from the history around it, and then the application of that little nugget completely can be changed, and then we, we've really done something with Scripture which was never intended to be done. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So it's a new way of reading the Bible, and I think it's the first step to receiving the Bible that God actually gave us, is to, to read those things in context Um, I think the gig is up in terms of cherry-picking the nice verses. I mean, there are too many people now who are pointing out the fact that all the verses aren't nice and inspirational, that there are other verses. And it isn't really fair to just say the Bible are the nice ones. That's what the Bible is, is these good ones. And why are the other ones there? And are they to be ignored? And I think that game that we've kind of been playing of just picking the nice ones, other people are calling us to account saying that's not the real Bible. And you guys have to account for the full Bible, all of the Bible. If you're going to honestly present us as something that we should pay attention to as the Word of God, as you say, then you have to be honest with the Bible. So I think Christians have to start learning, like, okay, how do we deal with everything that's in the Bible? And, And the way to do that is to receive it on its own terms. And the first step is, what kind of writing is this? And then what kind of world was this written to? And then we can have the conversation what does that say to us today? But we like to skip that first step. Right. So it's not that this is just a a novel idea, really. This is, from what you're saying, this is a responsibility that we have. If we're going to continue to declare Scripture as the Word of God and speak into the lives of those around us, then we have a responsibility, really, to, as you say, not just cherry pick um, those great verses, but have an understanding of the entirety of Scripture. And I think that takes us to this next point mm-hmm. where you say that there's that contrast between our de-dramatized Bible versus the story-ented Bible. Can you explain this to us? Yes. Story-ented was a made-up word, but it came from speaking too fast. I was trying to say story-oriented, and it just kind of ran together. So I thought, hey, that's a great new word. We need story-ented Bibles. I like it. Um, so another fallout from the modern Bible area was we stopped reading the Bible as a God's grand narrative of himself in the world and his redemption restoration project. We started just thinking that the Bible was meant to be a bunch of little pieces that I fit into my life. 
The problem with that is if I'm not living the story of the scriptures, then I'm getting my story from somewhere else. Somehow, each of us makes sense of the story of our lives from some bigger narrative that we think we're a part of. And if we don't get it from the scriptures, we're going to pick it up somewhere else and try to fit pieces of the Bible into that narrative. And I think that's the problem many Christians get into in their lives is they're not really thinking of their entire life as an extension of the story of the Bible. The way I like to say it is, I think what the Bible wants from us more than anything is to invite us into its story, to realize that the story of the scriptures didn't end at the end of the New Testament, that the story of the scriptures actually continues. We are living that same story of restoration in Christ. And what we have to do is figure out what does that story look like in our world, which is a later scene in the same story. It's a different setting, right? We're in the modern world. There's a lot of things that have changed from the ancient world. A lot of things stay the same in terms of human dynamics. But we have to think about the Bible as the script of the story so far that's before us. And we're living in a different time, but the same story. So we have to let the story of the scriptures kind of swallow up our entire lives so that instead of fitting little bits of the Bible into my life that I think of in another way, what if we thought of like my entire life, everything I'm about is part of this narrative of what God is doing in the world through Christ. That's good. So scripture isn't an additive to our lives. We actually find ourselves within the story of scripture. Right. And so then what I think this changes, if we start thinking, and this is the center section of my book, it's really the biggest idea, I think, is to read Scripture as a story. What we realize is we have to rethink our strategies for using the Bible, if that's what the Bible really is. If the Bible really is a story and not a reference book, then I can't just look up the right answer to every question by finding the right reference. Instead, what I have to do is say the authority of the Bible is a kind of narrative authority. What does it even mean for a story to have authority? And so we have to rethink how we think about the Bible. I can't look up verses from Leviticus about how to think about modern slavery. Now that speaks to the issue of slavery, but we're not living in the ancient world where slaves were taken for granted. So I have to have a more sophisticated way of reading the story of the Bible as moving toward more and more light, moving toward the revelation of God's intention in Christ especially. And then I'm reading the entire scripture through this Jesus lens, which is an important part of reading the Bible as a story, to realize that Jesus is the center of that story, that it comes to its fulfillment in him. And I can't just pick anywhere in the Bible as having exactly the same standing today, right? It's not a flat book. It's a story that's moving toward Jesus And Jesus is the clearest revelation of what God's intentions for the world are. And so the the, the story of the Bible is moving toward greater and greater light. I think it's a very interesting fact, for instance, if you take the patriarchs, they don't qualify for church office in the New Testament letters because the story has moved on. And Paul says, here's what I want in people who hold office in the church. They should be the husband of one wife. And I'm like, See, the, the story is moving more clearly toward God's intention. So it's, it changes the way we read the Bible if we really take seriously that it's a narrative centered in Jesus. Wow, that's fascinating. And, and I, I love the, the understanding of Scripture as something that is continuing to unfold. But at the same time, I, I see that there could be some, have some pushback because that means, in a way, we don't have as much control over Scripture. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's been part of the modern proposal has been, look, this is truth in a modernistic sense. And therefore, the way it functions, the authority of the Bible, which can become control, right, is a certain modernistic kind of scientific even way of thinking about things. And I think, you know what, if God wanted to give us an answer book where we didn't even have to engage our brains or our imaginations, we could just look up the right answer to every question you know, by opening the Bible, then he's not taking us seriously as his own image-bearing significant creatures. And I think what God wants much more from us is to take seriously the Bible. And this doesn't work if you don't read the scriptures and know the story so well that it's kind of in your bones. I mean, you can't play your part in the ongoing story if you don't know the story. If you're not really reading it and knowing it, and and the dynamics that stay the same in the story, you're not going to play your part well in this new period. So there's more freedom in this kind of view of the Bible because it's guiding us in a way through the Spirit, the, the story of everything that's happened before, especially the story of Jesus. But God expects us to bring all of us to playing that part well. He expects us to be significant creatures. We alone were, the, were made in his image to be people who make significant decisions. We think, we pray, we do it in community with the gift of the Spirit. We have teachers and preachers and all these support mechanisms to play our part well in the story. But it's more than just getting the right answer and saying, I don't even have to think about it. We do have to think about it because it's a different world. I'll just give you one example. A couple of years ago when my father died, you know, we faced these questions about how much medical intervention do you take? These are specific questions that modern medical technology has introduced to us, and they're ethical questions. How much is too much help? How much are we artificially extending the life of a person versus letting a person die who's clearly dying? Because we have the medical ability to do this, should we sustain a life at a very low level physically for years just because we can with this huge machine around a person? Or do we let them die when they're dying? Well, there's no place in the Bible to just get the right answer to that. But we're living that same story of this is an image-bearing creature of God. Death is a reality. What's the right level of intervention in this particular case? We have to bring ourselves to that. And that's the way I think the Bible is meant to inform our lives, but not give us an easy answer to every question. That's good. So it's kind of the descriptive nature of the Bible as opposed to the prescriptive nature of the Bible. It gives us that it kind of informs and guides and directs and continues to as a as the living scripture as we interact with it, the Holy Spirit speaks to us and, and helps guide us along through that story as it's continuing to unfold. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, the next big idea you touch on is our otherworldly Bible versus the earthly Bible. And and even what you're just speaking of right there, I mean, the earthly Bible is something that's, that's tangible and, and makes sense in regard to the things we are facing today and not just... Uh, the ever after. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think one of the things that happened, um, this happened earlier than the modern period, actually, but as the Bible moved out from being based in a Jewish culture and a Jewish homeland, and, and as early Christianity moved out into the world, it encountered different stories. One of those stories is that um, when you die, there's no such thing as resurrection. And the big question in life is, is where are you going to go when you die? I mean, in ancient Greek and Roman afterlife storytelling, if you will, they had views about an afterlife that were either good or bad based on the kind of life you had lived. And it, it turns out that the church 
ended up adopting a lot of that story rather than staying focused on on the Bible's actual story, which is about the restoration of creation. I mean, when you really read the text, I think we've read over these, and historically the church has had to make a major correction, which again I think is being made increasingly. People are realizing that the biblical language is new heaven and new earth. It's the restoration of all things. It's Jesus in in the opening song of Colossians being there at the creation and that all things in heaven and earth are reconciled through the blood of Jesus. That's a different story. That's a story that says what the Bible's trying to do is invite us back into this grand, huge, cosmic restoration project that God has accomplished through the work of Christ. And this other story that we've been telling, that the Bible is just about getting things right so that you can go to heaven when you die, that is not a good telling of the scriptural story when you really read the text of the scriptures. I mean, I think it's as clear as it can be. It's just that we've imposed kind of this other story, which didn't really go out of, out of the roots of the scripture itself, but that we've read into the Bible as this afterlife story, rather than resurrection, new creation, new heaven, new earth. This is what the scriptures speak of. Right, and I think, uh, as you mentioned, there are a lot of voices today, a lot of scholars today who are, who are bringing this to the forefront and really kind of um, stripping away some of those stories that we've imposed on Scripture and really getting to the heart of Scripture, especially when it comes to, you know, the, the, the restoration movement of God. I think of N.T. Wright, Surprised by Hope. That was probably one, one of the biggest books that's been published recently that kind of speaks to this. I know Scott McKnight speaks to this as well a lot, um, several others, but for a moment here, if we can just pause and think of our ministry leaders, our pastors right now, um, this is probably one of those places where, you know, a pastor is speaking into um, some baggage that's been carried for literally centuries, has been passed on. This is kind of common thought, and people equate this with Scripture. How can pastors begin to talk through this, or how have you seen pastors beginning to address this idea of understanding the the, mm. the story-oriented Bible, but then also this idea that it's not just that ever after, you know, the Bible's keeping us in line so that we can, um, you know, slip through the pearly gates one day, but what it means for us. Yeah, and I think this is actually a huge deal with motivations for reading the Bible. If you accept the old story that, you know, if, if you believe in Jesus, believe in his death for your sins, that then you have this ticket to heaven when you die. I even see, you know, little booklets called Passport to Heaven, that's what the Bible is, that sort of thing, it demotivates you from reading the Bible. Because once you get that basic act of salvation done, and you think, well, okay, I'm set for when I die, what do I need this whole long, complicated book for? But if you have a view of the restoration of God's life in his good creation, that's what his goal is, when heaven, the new heaven and the new earth come down out of heaven, and God makes his home with us, as Revelation says it, then I'm suddenly motivated to say, I need to understand life on earth. I need the wisdom books of the Bible. I need the letters to the early church because this is what Paul and the other apostles were writing to real Christians in the real world about what it means to follow Christ in your world. What are the issues in Corinth? What are you facing in Colossae? And this is what it means to follow Christ because what God wants is a world that works the way he intended it to at the beginning. So suddenly I have new motivation I think to understand all the nooks and crannies of the Bible, to understand everything that the Bible brings, because the Bible is the path toward this restoration of the life God intended for us in his world, in community with other people, 
And if that's taken away, then I think you're like, well, I've accepted my plan of salvation. I don't really need the Bible because I have this other storyline. So I think it gives us new reason to accept the full teaching of all of the scriptures as contributing to our understanding of life on earth, which is the home that God made for us. Excellent. So we've got the, well, this one is my private Bible <laughs> versus our synagogue Bible. That's the next kind of big thought that you that you raise in your book. Yes, and this is based directly on um, the insight into the synagogue that we get out of the New Testament itself. I think it's fascinating how much time Jesus spent in synagogues. And then when we see Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, going out into the world, it's interesting. He always goes to synagogues first. And, and synagogues were interesting places, right? The scriptures were read regularly every single week. They had a cycle of reading through the scriptures on, on, in a regular and systematic kind of way. But these little windows we get into synagogue life is um, apparently it wasn't just one person, the leader, getting up and delivering a monologue. What you see is discussions starting to happen. Paul is invited to read the scriptures and then to deliver a message as a traveling Jewish person. He's invited. His stature is recognized. And he gets to speak on the scriptures in a Jewish synagogue. And then he gets pushback. Right. And it even says that the discussion spilled out into the streets and they came back the next week to continue it. So there was this interactive community element in the scriptures um, that happened in the synagogue. So I think it's kind of a model of something, again, that we have lost in the modern area where we've made our Bible engagement center on a kind of an individualism. We think this is an individual journey. It's you, God, and the Bible is the center of this. And while I certainly am not against personal Bible reading, you know, that's the last thing that we want to lose. By all means, people can spend time and should with their Bibles. But what we've lost in the modern area is any kind of regular, sustained community experiences around the text in community. And it's interesting, those, all those yous in the New Testament, they're plural. They're not singular. Paul is writing to groups of people you do this and you do that. He's talking about a community. So I think we've lost the art of engaging the scriptures with each other. And, you know, I have my own life experiences. I am who I am. I bring all my filters and lenses to the scriptures when I read. And I have my own blind spots. What I need is I need to be reading the Bible and discussing it with others because they see things I would never see. I gloss over and I ignore because it's not, it doesn't matter to me when I'm first reading the text. And so there's so much depth and richness to be had if we could rediscover communal ways of experiencing the Bible. And I think, again, it's wide open territory for re-envisioning new kinds of practices, which we don't even necessarily have on our radar yet. But we need to make the Bible a communal experience, not just an individualistic solo sport, which we know so many people are now failing at. Yeah, it's more an invitation like we've said, to enter into the story, to wrestle with it, than just trying to kind of tick some boxes or fill in some blanks, which is you know typically what we think of from a Bible study. This is that Bible reading, entering into that story as, as a whole. Yeah, I think that's right. Scott McKnight says what the Bible is overall is a community formation book. That's what it's trying to do is form the new people of God into a community that together— is a light to the world of what God's new life looks like. And it's best done in community, not just by ourselves. Excellent. Real quickly, one last big idea you had 
And this one, uh, I'm curious to hear what you have to say about this, our ugly Bible versus the iconic Bible. Yeah, historically in the Christian faith, the true and the good and the beautiful were always meant to go together. We've historically, the faith has talked about those things being together. Justice is beautiful, and injustice is ugly when you see it. And so we've lost this idea of beauty. I think we've minimized it, again, in the modern period. We've settled for kind of an information Bible. And we've designed Bibles even to be information conveyors of truth. What we've neglected is beauty. And actually, older Christian tradition had these beautiful, gorgeous, illuminated manuscripts like the Book of Kells and others um, from Ireland, Northern England. And there was real intentional beauty brought just to the text because the text itself was thought to be a revelation from God that's worthy of adornment. Now, we don't need to have everybody have an illuminated text necessarily, although there are some new editions of of illuminated texts coming out. Crossway has the Four Holy Gospels, which is this beautiful presentation of the Gospels with new art around it. And the St. John's Bible is another one that's been done recently. So there's that beauty aspect coming back. But, But even more than that, I think it's just a recognition that beauty is part of God's revelation, that first of all, it's a beautiful story. The story itself is beautiful. And so we have to think of this as a surprising story. Like God has done things in the scriptures that are different than the way we would have ever planned it. David was not, he was such a a poor choice of of a king that his father didn't even think to bring him in from the fields. So God does the unexpected thing. Jesus comes into the world in in a low status way rather than the high status way of a king or royalty. And there's there's all these kind of surprises in the story, twists in the story that change things. And there's beauty in that telling of that story. So such a story should be treated beautifully. And I think one thing I'm hoping for is that publishers will bring a design sense back to the scriptures and think less about information, more about beauty, and even things like our public reading of scripture. If we brought intentionality to that, if people were reading Scripture in a way that was a performance, if you will, um, reading the passage ahead of time. And, and I think there's an actually a calling in a church to have lectors, people who can read Scripture well with meaning and with force and with the right kind of emotion for that particular passage. That in itself can make Scripture come alive for people. And we've neglected this part of the Bible. The stories themselves use literary devices. And we need to learn those things. It's all part of this beauty aspect of the Bible that I think if we finish all these other recoveries, the last thing we need to bring back to the Bible is beauty because it's there inherently from the start. We've just kind of made it go away. It's so good, Glenn. So good. Thank you again for being with us today and and for these fascinating concepts that you've shared with us. You've really given us much to consider. And thank you for helping our pastors as they think practically on how they can introduce people to Scripture in a way that invites them to not simply snack, as you've said, but really to feast and to better understand the grand scope of God's amazing story of reconciliation. Glenn, thank you for your continued work. We look forward to seeing how this whole idea of Bible reading continues to develop and how it helps form our faith communities, and really impact our churches. Yeah, thanks again. And uh, just praying that uh, the Bible will flourish 
more uh, because of your good work as well. So thank you. Thank you. And if you guys want to read more about what Glenn Powell has has written, his book again is Saving the Bible from Ourselves. It's published by InterVarsity Press. And uh, we encourage you guys to take a look at that and dig more into to what we've shared today. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. God bless you all. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.